Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome into our latest edition of the KC Bobcast. Today's guest is Kansas Speedway President Pat Warren. The Kansas Speedway is one of the most important entities that we have in Kansas City. It generates more revenue than you could ever imagine, and it brings people in from all over the world to experience what Kansas City has to offer. For two weekends a year, the Kansas Speedway is the center of the sports world, and it happens in May and October. Plus, Pat Warren has an interesting story to tell. How you go from being in an athletic department at the University of Kansas to basically quitting everything and reestablishing your life and becoming a business major and going to college in your 30s and then coming back to run the Kansas Speedway. Pat Warren has seen it all and also discusses what the sports scene in Kansas City is going to look like in the future. Here's my conversation with Kansas Speedway President Pat Warren. This has been kind of a, a whirlwind for you. you. You go from working at the University of Kansas, you go to get your business degree, you go to work at a Sprint, and now you wake up and you're the president of Kansas Speedway. How does that happen to somebody? Well, you know, when we talked before, I told you I never thought I'd be working in NASCAR. Uh, when I was working at KU and they were building the Speedway, it, to me, and I, I, in fact, I told Bob Frederick, who's a good friend of mine, this thing's a white elephant. You know, you run it two times a year. How do you make it work successfully? We we knew what we were doing with 20 basketball games a year and six or eight football games and the struggles we had. And then you look at this, at the time, $225 million investment that's open, what to us looked like two days a year. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that work? Uh, well, I can tell you it works, and it works pretty well. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I went from K- I left KU uh, when Bob was forced out. Uh, and I decided to go to business school at the best place that would take me, which was the University of Chicago at the time. Um, sold my house in Lawrence, moved, uh, was there for two years, interned at Sprint, came back and worked full-time at Sprint, uh, worked there for two years, and then got hired as the director of marketing at, at Kansas Speedway, and through a series of mistakes, they called promotions, uh, ended up where, where I am today. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's really cool, and Pat, your story I think is really interesting because you go to business school in your 30s, and I think for a lot of people, they would have been scared to do what you did. You, you took a big leap and decided, this is what I'm going to do. What was that like for a 30-some-year-old dude to say, I'm out of this, I'm going to business school, and I'm just kind of starting over, if you well, will? Well, you know, ironically, it, was, it took me a while to get there. The morning that I was supposed to go take the GMAT, which is the admissions test you take, yeah. literally, you know, you, so you sort of train on it for months. It's on a computer. Um, and I had been working on it uh, and trying to get prepared for it because I knew I had to get a good score and, and all those things, especially having been out of school for eight years. The morning I was supposed to go take it at Robinson, which is where the, the thing was across from my office now in Fieldhouse, I get a call from Al Bull at 8.15 in the morning. Hey, Pat, I need to see you. And he calls me up, and it's the day he's decided to fire Terry Allen. Oh. So I walk out. I was the internal attorney for the department at the time, and I walked through some of those things with him and connected with the general counsel and ended up going over and taking the test. But they have a feature with the GMAT where you can not accept your – you don't even submit your score for uh, for – scoring sure you just take the test and then say no i don't want it well i knew mentally i wasn't there for that so i did that um but it was a pretty big leap you know and so i took the test later and did well enough to fool chicago and they let me in um but yeah you you know when you sell your house and you move um it's a pretty big 
pretty big change in your life. I thought I was getting out of sports altogether. I never thought I was going to be back in sports. Um, and wasn't really looking to get back in sports when a series of things hit me at one time when I was at Sprint. Uh, an opportunity at North Carolina. I got a call from Jared Haas, who's now at Stanford, mm-hmm. uh, about an associated E position there. Uh, I had a, another guy call me about a position as president of the Hamilton Tiger Cats football team in the Canadian Football League. How does that happen? A, a guy who had worked for me at KU um, called me up and he said, I've got a list of one of people that we want to hire. And he was working for the owner of the club. And uh, ironically, I didn't do it because I didn't want Canadian health care. Right. Sure. Um, so, <laughs> and, uh, and then Jeff called about the Speedway. And so I, I ended up at the Speedway. That's unbelievable because I think a lot of people would look at that and go, 32 years old, I've got this career, and that's it. I'm going to stay put. And I I think you can be looked at it kind of like an inspiration because I'm sure there's a lot of people right now, whether they're in their 30s or even in their 40s, that are thinking, is this all I'm going to do in life? I mean, can I do something different? Do I have the guts, if you will, the stones to start over? I'll say, yeah, call Pat Warren. He'll tell you it's okay (laughs) to go do that, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd say I had the guts to do it. It It was something I wanted to do that I saw as an avenue for a career change. and. One of the things that had happened to me at KU, my undergraduate degree was in political science, and then I went to law school. And so I was always looked at as the attorney in the room when when I was sitting in a meeting. And I I really feel like I've got more of a mind for business than law in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. And the difference is you look at people from the outside, I think the difference is people don't look at lawyers as problem solvers. I think they should, but they don't always look at lawyers as problem solvers, and for a lot of good reasons. Um, When you're a business person, you can solve problems and add value. And so... I realized as I was working through business challenges at KU that there were things I wanted to do that I was sort of figuring out, but it was almost like I had to develop the idea on my own to figure out how to get there. Right. And then I had a friend who was in business school at Kellogg at the time, and I started talking to him about it, and he's like, hey, you learn this stuff in business school, and it makes everything a lot easier. Um, and so he and I talked, and that's how I ended up doing what I was doing. All right. I've got a list of, like, 85 different questions and topics I want to get into. But you mentioned, you know, he called you on the morning he was going to fire Terry Allen. And I, I think, like, from a sports pan- fan's perspective, we always sit around and go, that guy needs to be fired. This guy stinks. This guy's terrible. He needs to go. Take us inside that, what it's like to talk to a coach and tell them they're no longer the coach at that university or for that professional team. Well, I need to be careful because I was a practicing attorney at the time, and so some of that's attorney-client privilege. Sure. And I don't, I'm trying to, I need to think through what I should share, but Terry and I were close. We were good friends. Um, I wasn't the one who shared the message with Terry, mm-hmm. uh, but I would tell you that having gone through it, uh, having gone through two head coaching changes in football when I was at KU, Glenn Mason left, actually almost three, because Glenn left to Georgia, came back, and then went to Minnesota. And then Terry, of course, was let go. And then I was there during the whole first Roy Williams, North Carolina saga. I was gone for the second. Uh-huh. But um, it's usually not a surprise is what I would say. I don't, I, you know, I, I think much more often than not, everybody knows it's coming within the organization. And so it's a, there are probably questions about who's going to be the one to go tell them and how's that going to be communicated. But it, you're thinking much more about the transition and what you're going to do for the student athletes that are staying in the program, and and then on a personal level, you know, you know all the assistant coaches, you know their families, all those kind of things, and you know you're affecting a lot of people when you make a decision like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my decision to make, but I was somebody who was involved in the process, um, and and I you know I think people probably down when you look at sports from the outside, a lot of people probably downplay the human side of 
how those changes impact not just the players, which are sort of the visible people impacted, especially in college sports, but all those assistant coaches and other people in the staff, maybe front office staff, mm-hmm. nobody ever thinks about them. And it's it's a big change for people when those when those firings or you know departures occur. You say, who is going to go tell them? Isn't that the job of the athletic director at a university to say, hey, I'm making this decision, you're the guy that has to go make that call? Yeah, and I don't rem- I honestly don't remember what happened in Terry's case, but, uh, you know, Al Bull might have been a little bit like Trump, where, you know, he he says, you know, I'm the guy who says you're fired, but then send somebody else to do it. <laughs> so, right. no, Go ahead. No, no, I, I just, that's sort of what I would say generally. Yeah, so the Roy Williams, the first go-around, when, when he said, I'm staying and you do it in, in Memorial Stadium, did you think he was going to be a lifer at KU after that moment? Um, I did, but I would tell you that the caveat to that was that I also thought Bob Frederick was going to be a lifer. Um and I think a lot of people overlook the personal loyalty factor that Roy had with Bob. Bob hired Roy when Roy was a second assistant in North Carolina. Took a lot of criticism for it. We were going from a national championship team, high-profile coach in Larry Brown. People thought we should be going out and hiring another super high-profile coach. I was a student at KU at the time. Roy called Dean Smith. Dean said, there's this guy on my staff you got to talk to. He and Roy clicked. Roy came out, visited the campus. Bob hired him. And this was before, I think this was really before the days of the search firms being involved in the coaching searches. And it was a high-profile departure, if you remember, mm-hmm. but still very different than the atmosphere, that sort of the circus that surrounds, that would surround, it, like if Bill Self left today, I mean, you know the insanity that would ensue. Right. Um, and so Roy felt very personally that Bob had gone out on a limb for him. His first contract with KU, I think, was for either $64,000 or $84,000 a year. That's it? Yeah. You know, and then he had a television package for maybe another 150 um, And so he bought a nice home in Alvamar, not an extravagant home. He lived there uh, almost the entire time he coached at KU. Uh, he moved into a not a bigger home, but just a different home uh, before he left. But it was because Wanda wanted to move uh, after the kids left. Mm-hmm. And so, but Roy had this personal loyalty to Bob. And when, when Roy saw what the university did to Bob Frederick, after Roy made the decision to stay, I, I, I've not spoken to him directly about this, but if you read his book, he sort of alludes to it, and I've talked to some of the assistant coaches. I think he looked at that situation and said, if I'm ever in trouble here, no one's going to have my back because they didn't have Bob's back. And, you know, if you're a head coach and you look at it and you think, you know, yeah, I have one or two down years, I don't make the tournament, how does this institution show its loyalty mm-hmm. and you see what happened to one of your best friends um, it, it doesn't necessarily you know engender great confidence for you in the university's leadership uh, or how they're going to manage a, a difficult situation how difficult is it to hire a head coach well, I, I mean I was really involved with the hiring of Terry Allen and then the year before um, when Glenn had left and and ultimately came back which was Chancellor Hemingway's decision um, I don't think it's that hard. I think it's, it depends on the sport, obviously. When we were hiring for the football job at KU, there was a degree to which you had to sell a high-profile coach on why do you want to come to Kansas. Basketball doesn't have that challenge. Um, and, and the atmosphere, look, that was in the early 2000s, late 1990s, so the atmosphere is very different today. You look at what happened at the University of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, John Curry hires this guy, and then they go back to his Penn State days. And, you know, there's just the, the, the Internet was barely alive. Um, in terms of a source of information, it was there were certainly you know 
KUSports.com, and there were recruiting blogs and all those kind of things, but it's at a whole different level today. And the ability to go back into someone's past is different today than it was then. Uh, and I think people are held to higher and different standards. Um, but, you know, I, I, personally, if I were back in college athletics, I think I would probably have the same view that, that Bob did, which is you hire somebody for their values, you make sure they can, can coach whatever sport you want them to, but you also got to be sure they're doing the right thing off the court or off the field. Um, and if you sort of check those three boxes, you're probably going to be successful. Well, since you've taken over at the Speedway, you've seen things kind of go from here to here, and now you have to start getting trying to get back right. to here. And, and it's not just in, in NASCAR. It's in all sports. Sports has drastically changed in the last decade. I don't care what anybody wants to say. What's been the biggest impactful change you've seen since really when the Speedway opened to where we sit at present day? Biggest change we've made or the biggest change in the sport? Biggest change. Well, let's go both. The biggest change you guys have made and biggest change in the so sport. So I think the biggest change in the sport, um, which I don't, the sport would admit, NASCAR as a, as a community would admit we didn't handle well, um, was the rollout of, they called it the car of tomorrow, the new car. Um, it was designed, frankly, directly as a response to uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s death. Um, I don't know if anybody says that explicitly, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, if you sort of look at the timing, that's pretty much what it was. Um, and a realization that the cars could be made much safer. We, we added safer barrier. We made the facilities safer. Now we had to improve the car. Um, and that's a longer process. It's not as easy. And it safety was at the forefront of everything that was going on with that. And NASCAR talked about that, but probably didn't work closely enough with the drivers to get driver buy-in. And so when they switched cars, the drivers hated the new car. And the drivers said they hated the new car. Well, if the stars in your sport are saying they hate the primary vehicle in this case not using the term in both ways vehicle for competition um it's not good for the sport and so you can imagine if you made a wholesale change in football uniforms or football helmets and almost every football player said this is a terrible change i know it's safer but i hate it i can't do this i can't do that fans aren't going to like it and that's what happened to the sport that was in 2006 so for two years the sport worked on correcting it and we had so much momentum in the sport at the time that we didn't see, I, I would say, we didn't see some erosion that was occurring. We had the recession in 2008, and the sport, like a lot of things, sort of fell off a cliff. And at the time, we came together as an industry, and we started. We were we worked even harder on fixing the problems, but we had this um, almost like heart disease that had started before, and we had heart surgery when the... Uh, when the recession occurred, mm -hmm. and now we're getting back up to, to full health, if that makes sense. Sure. What about at the Speedway? What, what's the biggest change you guys have made out there? Biggest change we've made is probably when we added the second Sprint Cup date. Um, we used to have an approach where when we ran IndyCar and we ran three NASCAR series, uh, you could buy any ticket you wanted as long as it was a season ticket, sort of the Henry Ford model. Uh -huh. uh, and so when we added the second date, we really felt like for, for our fan base and for what we were trying to do, we really needed to offer that single ticket option. Almost everyone else in the country did it at the time. They do now. Um, and so when we made that change, that was probably the most significant change to our business model. Um, and it, it, where you see it the most is in a drastic impact on our support races. For the truck series and the Xfinity race, smaller crowds now. Because not as many people are buying season tickets. They're coming to just the cup events. So sports as a whole, as we talked about, are, are dealing with issues. I mean, the NFL has got their new targeting issues. They've got lacking attendance. They have the anthem crisis that's taking place. Baseball's trying to figure out how to, you know, market to a 20-year-old. You know, you've got, you know, hockey, which is, you know, people are trying to figure out what to do to right. market that sport as well. What do you think overall is sports? Take all sports into account. What's the biggest challenge facing sports in general today? I think it's twofold. Um, I think the... You can't under, 
underestimate or undervalue the change that HDTV has made in the at-home experience for sports. Um, it is it is revolutionary in terms of the enhancement in the quality of staying at home and watching a game. And, and I would couple with that the changes in pricing and technology on large screen in-home TVs because 15 years ago it was $5,000 to buy a 54-inch non-HD projection TV and it looked nice and it was cool, but it was what it was. Now for $5,000 you can build out a full home theater system and have arguably have an experience that's better at home than you have at the stadium. Mm-hmm. You know, with the recliners and the, I mean, you just think about all the stuff that's happened in home entertainment. Um, and so I think you couple that with changes in uh, production technology. And, you know, we have a larger television compound than the Super Bowl at our races. Wow. Uh, and it's because of the size of our facility and the number of cameras. You're trying to put all these in car cameras in and all this other stuff. And so we have a huge television compound. It's a great experience for the viewer at home, but it creates an economic challenge for us because if I'm trying to say to someone, Leave your living room or family room or basement or wherever you're watching and come to Kansas Speedway. What's the compelling reason for them to do it? You know, i got to make traffic work for them. I've got to have reasonably priced concessions. I've got to hope that the weather's good. You know, all those things that none of those are factors for them at home. I don't have to fight traffic. I don't have to worry about the weather. You know, if it rains out, I go do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Chiefs, the Royals, every other sports group has the same problem. As it relates to youth, I think it's a, a, diff- a similar but different challenge, and I would call it an attention span issue. Um, KU is seeing some significant changes in its student attendance, even at basketball games, and it's because students don't want to. Students and young people don't want to dedicate eight hours to a sporting event. And KU, if you're camping out for the game pregame, and then you know you're there when they open the doors two hours ahead of time, and you're at the game, that's a six, four to six eight hour experience, depending on what it is. And students just aren't willing to do that. They, you know, they, they, they'll follow on an app, they'll watch it online, they cheer for the team, but they do it in different ways. So how do you, I, I guess Major League Baseball has realized that they go, you know what, our TV product is more important than fans in the stadium. I mean, they, they flat out admitted to that. So are we getting to that point in time where the TV product, now you have to find ways to make that better in order to compensate for what's going on at the gate for a lot of places? Yeah, I, I think part of it is you're seeing more honesty among the the leagues and the teams, and in our case, a facility, about the importance of television revenue. It's It's been a huge factor for college sports and professional sports for the last 25 years, but it's growing in terms of importance, um, and I think it's more transparent now because there didn't used to be any media covering media. Media didn't used to care that much about what ESPN or Fox Sports or somebody was doing. Now, you might talk about how those two entities are influencing a college schedule or, or something like that. You know, until, until Notre Dame signed the exclusive contract with NBC and then a little bit further back, Oklahoma did the deal where they tried to break out of the ABC deal. It, it was a real, in college, it was a locked environment. Mm-hmm. And in pro, it didn't really matter. It was sort of a behind-the-curtain thing. You didn't look at it. Now it's very upfront. You see these mega billion dollar deals the NFL is signing, and you can't ignore it. And so, you know, in our case, I, I view it as a co-opetition model. Television's a huge partner. We need to work with them. We need to do what we can to help them. But we also need television to help us, and, and they do. I think NBC in particular and Fox as well, they want to do things to make people understand 
that attending the events in person is different than watching it on TV because they know people that attend the events in person, and I assume this is true for other sports as well, are more likely to watch the product on TV. And so it's figuring out that balance for both of our industries to figure out how do you make the at-venue experience great, the in-stadium experience great, but also make the at-home good enough that when you don't have the opportunity to go watch it in person, and frankly for most events you won't, um, that you want to watch it on TV. Are, are you concerned that in 20 years we won't have sports fans left in this country? Because if the kids and the students aren't going to KU basketball games, then they're not going to invest once they get out and go as, as adults. Like, Are you concerned in 20 years we could be looking at arenas and, and stadiums all over the country that are empty? I, I think that's a very real risk. Um, you know, Whether that's going to happen at a place like KU, uh, you know, I think is, is a, a longer a much longer uh, story. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, you have, to, you have to think about if you're not building the next generation of fans, you lose a generation of fans and your sport can die um, because you can't survive missing, you know, 15 years of fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our sport in particular has been one that's been sort of passed down through families, um, and it's a harder sport to learn. You've got to, you know, if you just go out to a race and you watch, you're going to, if you just go out to a race, and you put in earplugs and you watch the race, you're going to be like, wow, that was really cool. A lot of colorful cars. They were going really fast, really, really loud. But I didn't really get it. Um, you know, once the, the run, the race started, like, I could see on that big thing in the middle, the scoring pylon, mm-hmm. who was in first by the number of the car. But he didn't look like he was first when he was out there because he caught the back of the field. And then he's in traffic. And, I, you know, and so it's a confusing event. It's hard. You put the radio on, you put on a headset, either a fan vision or just a standard radio, and you come out. It's even better if you've got a friend who can help explain some things to you. But even just listening to it on a, on a radio that listens to the frequency with the drivers, you pick a favorite driver. It doesn't even really matter who you follow, and the whole sport starts to click and make sense. And it's because it's like if you went to a football game for the first time. You came here from Africa, and you'd never watched American football. And if you could go to the game and listen to the head coach, the offensive coordinator, and the quarterback speak live during the game and explain what they're doing, that's what you get at NASCAR because you listen to the, the driver, you listen to the crew chief, and you listen to the spotter who's telling the driver and the crew chief what's going on elsewhere on the track. Talk live during the event. No other sport offers that. And, and in many ways, no other sport can because when it's a binary competition, if, if When the Chiefs were playing, if you had that level of transparency, the Chiefs could listen to their opponent, the opponent could listen to the Chiefs, you can react. When there's 40 cars on the track, you, you, competitively you can't make it work. It would be interesting to hear what, like, what Andy Reid is sending in to find out if he's really getting conservative in the second half of playoff games right. like we all assume, right? That would be cool. Yeah, People would pay extra for that, I would think, right? Well, if you Mark, had the opportunity well, to... Mark, Mark Donovan has said, you know, it's, he has set the goal within the NFL um, of trying to achieve that level of transparency uh, for fans, knowing they will probably never be able to actually achieve it, but saying if we don't set the bar there, we'll never even approach it. So I'm, I'm tasking you with impacting, let's say, a 15-year-old right now to make sure that person doesn't lose the interest in sports like you and I had when we were growing up. Our right. dads would take us to the game, we'd go to the game, we'd watch the game, we'd be interested in the sports. Now you talk about following it on the app, watching it on their phone, just watching highlights, still a fan, but not the go to the game, watch the whole game on TV. I'm tasking you with making that 15-year-old a diehard sports fan. How are we doing that now? I, well, I would say I think it's a much bigger issue than just being able to take the random 15-year-old and being able to do it. Because 
when you and I were growing up, I don't know if you grew up in Kansas City or not. But, I grew up in New Jersey, yeah. Okay, but so when you and I were growing up, there were sports seasons. And you play, like in Kansas City, you would play baseball in the spring and summer. You would play football or soccer in the fall. Sure. You'd play basketball in the winter. And you might swim or do something else depending on what your interests were. Now, all these sports, and I would put soccer at the top of the list, want kids to have a year-round, almost cult-like dedication to the sport. And it starts at like age 10. I mean, I've got four kids, and I've watched it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's healthy for any sports because I think what happens is all youth sports are asking kids to make choices to the exclusion of other activities. And so it's hard to be a premier soccer player and also compete in basketball. You can't – the schedules don't work. I mean, it, it just – I mean, I watch my daughters play, and, you know, why isn't such and such here today? Oh, she's at a soccer match in Lawrence. You know, why isn't this kid here today? Well, they're at dance or they're, you know, whatever the other thing is. And so I think a big part for every sport but NASCAR, participating in the sport and understanding the sport is part of becoming a fan. It's harder to be a fan of the sport if you've never participated in it. It's one of the big challenges we face. It's also an advantage we face because most people drive. Now, interestingly, with millennials, maybe let fewer drive, and it's a different challenge. Right, but, yeah. You know, so there's this, been this societal shift where um, when, when you, I would argue, when we over-program our kids, we don't let them relax and do things. How do you take your kids to a Royals game when you've got baseball three nights a week, soccer three nights a week, and then you know, fill in whatever else you're doing. There's no time to do it. I think our biggest competition, other than um, you know, what I laid out to you earlier with HDTV and sort of the attention span, is people's time. People don't have time to relax and enjoy things anymore. It's, it's a constantly programmed schedule for families. How much of your competition is this, the cell phone that everybody has right now? I think it's some, but I don't think it's huge. I, I, I view that more as a, uh, as a friend. Um, I think when people, I, I've been an advocate of trying to create an app where people can watch the race live in venue uh, and use it as the radio headset that I described earlier. Um, and we've had some attempts at that. They haven't worked perfectly because of latency issues, but I think technology will ultimately solve that. I think it'll help us. It'll help the NFL. Not sure it matters as much for Major League Baseball. Re- replays and umpires there are sort of a different story. Um, might help college basketball, but I think for our sport and for the NFL, it could really make a difference. I, I remember it was the 2014 postseason when the Royals were in it, and I was talking to somebody who is pretty high up in the Royals organization, and I said, oh, are the kids enjoying the season? You know, so just having a you know mm-hmm. conversation. And he goes, you know, I got like a 14-year-old son, and I think it was the age at the time, and, you know, he doesn't watch the games. I'm like, what do you mean he doesn't watch the games? He goes, well, he's got his phone. If he hears Alex Gordon rips a double, he goes on there quickly, and he watches the highlight right away. And that's when, for me, it started to become, wait a second, kids aren't watching the Royals. They're having their best season they've had in 25 years, and the young generation isn't invested. They'll just watch a highlight on the phone. And that's when it started to click to me, we're facing something Kind of strange in sports. And then you had the Chiefs this year with the playoff game not being able to sell any tickets to that to get people into the game, and they're selling them for five cents on the dollar. And you're like, wow, we are starting to really see that tide turn towards where people don't care about being at the game as much as they used to. Right. People. Well, I think part of it is that you people probably feel like they can be almost as intimately involved with the sport on their phone or on their tablet as they can being in the, in the venue at the stadium. Um, and that's our challenge as people who run – you know, whether it's, it's in our case, a facility that runs events or mm-hmm. the Royals or the Chiefs, you know, where they've got a home team, we've got to make that experience so compelling for the fan that you feel like, I want to go to the Royals game because, and then fill in because. And the same is sort of true for the broadcast, and, and in some ways I'd say it's a bigger challenge. TV probably competes more with the phone than we do, 
I think where the phone impacts us is the attention span issue that, that you just described. It's easier to check a race or a, a game or whatever it may be on your phone than to dedicate three hours or six hours to it. They just don't want to do it. Yeah, I, I just think, you know, when you look at a venue like the size of yours, you guys are obviously not selling the season ticket as a mandate anymore, and you have to fill, what, 65,000 seats, right? How do you do that? Are you going back to some grassroots stuff where you're going out and, like, actually hitting the pavement and, and, and selling the sport again? We are. You know, we're, we've gone the last two years to the Knoxville Nationals in Iowa. Um, we work with local dirt tracks and, and things like that, and it's amazing when we go to places like that that 18 years into our facility still – People react to us like, oh, we didn't know they were running, you know, NASCAR, major NASCAR racing in Kansas City. And I'm like, you know, we're, we're just dumbfounded. We can't believe that that's the reaction we're getting, but that's our fault. That's yeah. not, you know, we, we, we haven't done a good job getting the message. How far out, is that from case. here? Uh, that's a couple hours. Where is that, it's Des Moines, not, roughly? Yeah, Central Iowa. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we hear that and we're like, wow, where did we go wrong? You know, what were we doing wrong? Um, well, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, before that recession, I think everybody in sports kind of just got fat and happy, for lack of a better term, you know? And Yeah, I would say that in the late 90s, from about 1995 to 2005, sports was like the cell phone industry in the early 90s. And when the cell phone industry took off, you remember Sprint, Sprint PCS, and at the time Singular, and everybody was adopting phones. People that didn't have phones were buying them. And so what was happening? All these companies were growing their business because more people were becoming subscribers, is what they call it. I'm obviously leaning back on my sprint experience here, but the industry was growing. And so if you were doing things that were wrong, you couldn't tell because the industry was growing so fast, that bucket was filling up so fast, that you were inevitably going to go up no matter how bad you were. Sports was the same thing. And NASCAR benefited from that. Everybody was, was engaging in professional sports in a way and excited about professional sports in a way during that period for whatever reason that everyone was doing well. And so everybody thought they were geniuses. They thought, oh, we're marketing geniuses. We know exactly what we're doing. And then when things started to slip, like in our case, it was, what happened? You know, we're the best. How can this be happening to us? And, and then you got to, you know, really look inside and look in the mirror and say, okay, where did we screw up? What haven't we done right? How do we fix it? What made sports hit the ground running like that in 1995 and all of a sudden become the biggest thing out there where the TV contracts became huge and all of a sudden all this money was poured into professional sports? I, the only thing, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think through it. I haven't really thought about it. Maybe the expansion of cable television at the time and satellite TV. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about, if I remember right, that's about when all the regional Fox Sports Network started and so you had some competitive things there. You radically expanded the amount of, especially in college sports, the amount of live sports programming. And so as you got more content, people were paying more for content, and it just created this escalating uh, escalating rights fee situation. And then I think the major leagues, uh, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NASCAR, saw that there was a huge opportunity there. NASCAR, prior to that time, each track had negotiated with television. Oh. And then they rolled it all into one, obviously with a consultant who'd worked with ESPN. Mm-hmm. So they rolled it into one TV deal, and that was when NASCAR really took off from a television rights perspective. You guys at the track, I, I saw, contributed about $250 million a year to the e- economy in this area yeah. for, for basically two weekends of racing. Right. I mean, that's a huge number, right? 
How does that compare with other events that we have in Kansas City? That seems really big to me. It, it is, and it's it's a it's a reflection of the fact that half of our fans come from distances of 200 miles or more, and they stay for a couple of days. Um, the, the Big 12 tournament, as an example, is a 15 to 20 million dollar economic impact. So you guys uh, are like 10 times as big, almost. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's just scale. It's 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 a combination of size of the Sprint Center, and even though they're running for multiple days, the, the fans are leaving as the tournament continues and typically for the big 12 tournament what's happening is kansas what used to be missouri but kansas or kansas state or maybe iowa state fans are coming into town if their team's doing well whether they're staying in hotels and doing those things is different the other difference in our case is that for the big 12 tournament the uh the sports commission i believe still works with the hotels to try to negotiate you know lower room rates and lower and room blocks and those kind of things in our case it's the other way so all the room prices go up. There are minimum night guarantees. And so if you look at the average hotel in sort of our neighborhood around the Speedway, and if they make on on an average night, 365 nights a year, $85, and that's about the figure, $10 of that is the result of the increased pricing during our race weekends. So more than 10% of their revenue is associated with two weekends a year. That's an incredible number. So not only with the hotels and whatnot, but what have you guys seen with that kind of economic impact, how you've been able to help out the Kansas City area over the last roughly 20 years? I, it's, there's probably not any single thing that's happened. Um, you know, we learn as we go, and so we've gotten better. Um, it, I, ironically, when the Legends opened up, I think every restaurateur in the Legends thought, we're going to get crushed on a race weekend, and then they weren't. And the reason is that people don't go to areas where there's a ton of traffic on a race weekend. Well, now they've figured out, hey, if I get in during the race, if I go in after the race, you know, there's really sort of a four-hour period at either end of the race where there's a lot of traffic. And other than that, the Legends is wide open and a great place to shop or eat or do whatever you want. And our race fans have learned about it. And so, you know, I think if you want to look at the area immediately around the Speedway and the change that's occurred there, you know, there used to be a Kentucky Fried Chicken and a convenience store there. My sister lived on the property that the Speedway now owns. Um, there, were, you know, it, it's just it, it's been a radical transformation. Five billion dollars of investment, like fifty-five hundred jobs. The casinos there now. Cerner is out there, obviously. Sporting KC, Nebraska Furniture Mart, Cabela's. Those are the things that I would say are planting the flag in, in Western Wyandotte County and saying we're here and we're here to stay help those things occur. We'll get back to our discussion with Pat Warren in a second, but let me tell you about Red Door Grill. Red Door Grill has become the go-to spot for me and my family. With three convenient locations in Brookside, Overland Park, and Leewood, there's always a Red Door Grill close by, and every day they have something awesome to offer. Sundays is prime rib Sunday and half-price bottles of wine. Every single bottle of wine in the restaurant is half price. Not certain bottles here, certain bottles there. Every bottle on Sunday is half price. Then on Monday, they have $5 burgers. That's what we love. Juicy, half-pound burgers grilled to perfection. And then Thursday, it's the jalapeno dip fried chicken. It takes a whole week to get that fried chicken ready, and you haven't had fried chicken until you've had the fried chicken on Thursdays from Red Door Grill. And, of course, every weekday from 4 to 7 is the best happy hour in town where you'll find phenomenal prices on drinks and appetizers. So you see, there are a 100 reasons to stop into one of the three Red Door Grills today. And we'll see you at Red Door tonight. You guys have had to kind of reinvent yourself, as we talked about, with the sport of NASCAR. Now you've got the staged racing, the, new, the newest kind of change to NASCAR. Why is this good for the sport? And explain to people what that means, too. Well, so um, I was lucky enough to be included in the group that developed the stage racing. Um, and, I, I mean, I was like in a, a pygmy in a room of giants as it relates to the sport. I'm sitting there with Jeff Burton and Jeff Gordon and, you know, some drivers um, – 
some team owners, big big players within NASCAR, Steve O'Donnell, Jim Cassidy, um, and I'm this guy who's you know 15 years into the sport. Most of them grew up in it in some way, um, but I'm sort of the numbers guy. I'm like, well, how do you create the incentives for the drivers? And the point system is ultimately a reward system. And so how do you create a reward system for the drivers that encourages the best competition? That was my framework from the beginning. And the, the, so if you look at, at NASCAR historically, they used to have a system that rewarded points at the end of every race. And those rolled up throughout the year. And you could create a season-long drama, or you could have a situation where four races before the end of the season, it was over. Dale Earnhardt Sr. had won the championship, or Richard Petty had won the championship because they'd built up such a lead. So, the, so Brian France said, that doesn't really work for us. we got to figure out some way to create, he called them Game 7 moments, and they started what was then called the chase. And so they reset the field 10 races before the end. You'd basically have a regular season in the playoffs. They called it the chase. You'd reset the field, and you'd start running chase races, and then they reset that every three rounds again to try to reset that competitive balance and encourage the best racing possible. The problem was, and we ran that for several years, the problem was there still wasn't a great incentive for a driver on lap 65 why would a driver in lap 65 care if they were in first or 10th place? Well, unless that affected their finish at the end, they didn't care. And so the idea with the stage racing was to say, we're going to create these moments in the race where it matters where you are. And it not only matters from like a PR perspective, which they used to give money and things like that, but it matters for the championship. And so the driver said, hey, the regular season points are great. That's, those are called sage points. Mm-hmm. Those are great. If you really want to get us to race give us playoff points. Help us get to Homestead, which is where the championship is every year. So we said, okay, the stage winner is going to get a championship point too. They're going to get a playoff point. And they get to carry that with them all the way through. Because now that's almost like trying to build up the equivalent of a buy through the various rounds of the NASCAR. Now we've sort of acceded to the world and said, it's going to be, we're going to call it the playoffs. Uh Denny Hamlin was funny because he said, every interview I do, I have to say, the chase, NASCAR's version of the playoffs. Can we just call it the playoffs? Right. And so we decided so in that room, we're going to call it the playoffs. Just give people what they're comfortable with, right. too. Don't make yeah. it so complicated exactly. or different. You know? it, I mean, I think originally it was, it was a laudable goal to try to differentiate the sport and probably placate our fans and say we're not like everybody else, but it really is a playoff system. So, so you, you get these points of how many stages are in a race? Right. Well, there are three stages. Um, basically, you not the first half of the race is two stages. So you've got in our race, we've got 267 laps. It might be like lap 80 and lap 160, and those aren't the exact stage lengths that our place. But roughly a quarter of the race and half of the race are the end of the first two stages. And then the second half of the race is the final stage, and that's when the the big points and the race winner is awarded. And and the, the stages are sort of mini races. Mm-hmm. And the idea is going back to you know kids and attention span and those kind of things. How do you draw a 15-year-old in to say, oh, I, I want to follow the sport or I care about the sport? There's not an Alex Gordon hitting a double other than a wreck in the middle of an NASCAR race uh, organically. But if you create a stage, now a 15-year-old might say, hey, did Martin Truex win that stage? Did Jimmy Johnson win that stage? Their driver, they now care about the stage wins. And I've seen it with my kids. They don't, they haven't, I wouldn't say fully embraced it. But they'll ask me at the end of a race, you know, they'll say, who won? Well, Clint Boyer won last weekend in Martinsville. Yeah. Did he win any stages? You know, and so they're starting to sort of get it. And so hopefully over time um, it gets more traction. But 75% of our fans have really embraced the stage racing concept. I think anybody who's willing to give it a chance as change, and some fans, a lot of sports fans don't like any change. Our fans are certainly in that category. 
anyone who gave it a chance can't really deny that it's created better racing or better competition. So I was going to ask you, like you, you talk about the stage racing and the, some of the kids are liking that. How do you get some of these younger fans involved in the sport? Do you, do you go with new drivers? How do you get new drivers involved in the sport well, too? Well, so it's not really our response. We're not so much on the driver development side, but let me talk about that for a minute because I think it's an interesting, there's an interesting change going on there and it's related to technology. It used to be that to be a driver, and this is one of the reasons we face challenges in diversity for drivers, it it was incredibly expensive because you had to have a car or a go-kart, a late model, something. Those things aren't cheap. You had to have parents who were pouring money into it. You had to go to the track every weekend. You've really got to be dedicated to learn how to do this sport. It's, It's not as easy as people think. It's not like you just get behind the wheel and you're crazy and you win. Um, you've really got to be good and understand how to drive those cars. Well, in the last 15 years, there's been a development of a, a computer simulation program called iRacing. And iRacing, for anybody that has never done it, and most people haven't, is basically a, a stationary racing simulator, and it can be anything from a single screen to three screens. Some of them have motion things, you know, sort of like a pilot would use. Um, oh, that's cool. But it allows a driver to get the most realistic experience outside of a car than is a more realistic experience outside of a car than has ever been possible. Mm-hmm. It's, I've tried it. It's impossible for me to I literally can't drive the cars. It's, so the, are they actual cars or are they simulators on that? They're simulators. Yeah. They're computer simulators, but they're really hard to drive. And NASCAR, you let fans do that? Anybody can do it. You just sign up. Oh, yeah? You build the simulator and you sign up and you do it. And yeah. you have to qualify and you're not, you know, when you start, you're not going to be racing at the top levels because if you did, you'd be wrecking everybody and it ruins everybody else's experience. And it's live competition. Oh, it is. So NAS- this isn't something you can just show up on like race day and do as like a kind of activity at the track you, or something you, like we, that. We could and we do, but we tend to use like more of a PS4 platform for that because it, it's easier. Yeah. Um, this is more for someone who is serious about racing, either a really, really avid fan or somebody who wants to race in the sport. William Byron, who's now in the 88 car, succeeded Dale Jr. in that car, trained himself on iRacing. He spent more time behind a computer screen than behind the wheel of a real car. First driver in the history of our sport to do that. Wow. And so I think it, I think it could be, a, a, I don't know if I'd say it's a generational shift, but it's going to be a huge change in our sport and the ability for people who may not have the resources to go out and run go-karts and do the travel and everything else that has traditionally been associated with our sport to be successful. I hate to sound like an old man, but like like you know the video game generation that we're in right now, that kids love playing those video games. Maybe this lends itself to that. That's like the next step that you take. You know, I, I think it does. Although I think watching my nine year old NASCAR needs a better tablet game because I watch him play Madden, I watch him play NBA Live, I watch him play whatever this MLS FIFA game is. NASCAR doesn't have a great game on a tablet right now, and it's hard to do because you can you know the ones they make, you turn the tablet. Uh, and that's how you steer, and that's sort of awkward, and it's it's hard to follow. And so I don't know, you know, you do things where the thumbs are the steering. With I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't pretend to be smart enough, mm-hmm. but I think that's what NASCAR needs to engage a 9, 10, 11-year-old to get them engaged in the sport, at least on the video game platform. If you can make one change, the France family comes to you and says, you get one change to make the NASCAR, what are you telling them? What's your, what's your deal? I don't know. I don't think there is one change that, you know, I, I would say um, keep doing what we're doing as an industry to try to encourage collaboration because most, most professional sports have uh, management or ownership and players, and those are really the two dynamics they've got to work with. And there's tension there in salaries and contracts and those kind of things, but managers, management is responsible for going out finding sponsors, doing those kind of things. And that's all sort of on this side. And then 
the, the, there's somebody in the front office usually not doing that work but figuring out who they want on the team, and they're also responsible for the, the action on the field or the court. Mm-hmm. In our sport, everybody's sort of doing everything because we control the playing surface, and we've got to maintain a competition surface that makes a difference in the sport. We have to make sure the, the sport's safe enough. We've got to sell sponsorship. We don't have a team to promote our sport. You're talking to me because a driver's not in market to talk to. Um, teams go out and sell sponsorships and compete with us. NASCAR goes out and sells sponsorship and competes with us, all in the same industry. And so it's really important for us to work together as an industry so that when we're going out to a Budweiser or an Anheuser-Busch, it's not they're hearing from Hendrick Motorsports or uh, it would be uh, Stuart Haas who has that relationship, but they're hearing from Stuart Haas, they're hearing from NASCAR about the Pole Award, and then they're hearing from 26 racetracks saying, buy from us. We're working much harder now to try to say, here's a way you can promote your brand and get it across the entire platform of the sport. And we've not been good at doing that in the past, but we're doing it now. And so if you said, what's the one thing you can do, it's do that better. Look at the landscape of Kansas City sports, and in I, it, it's changing, obviously, rapidly, I think. I think we're going to have a downtown baseball stadium. I think something's going to be different with, with Arrowhead, whether they do it out there or maybe even out by you guys. Where do you think in 20 years the Chiefs are playing? I haven't honestly thought about it. Um, I'm not sure I agree with you on the downtown stadium. I think it would be a neat concept. Um, I'm not sure how that impacts the city. Um, I can certainly see a lot of positive benefit to the downtown area, but I – Finding that real estate and the as an entity that had to find real estate when we were created, I think that's a challenge uh, in trying to do it. And then figuring out the parking and the logistics and how it impacts things. And unlike Chicago, as an example, that has a downtown park, St. Louis does too, but it's different. Chicago has great public transit to get people to and from Cubs games. We don't. And so our fans, Kansas City fans, are used to driving to sporting events or driving to live events which means you got to create a bunch of parking. And so it's not just a matter of finding the room for the baseball stadium. It's where do all the fans go when they come to the event, and, and how do you make that work? And I think it's a challenge. Is that one of your biggest challenges still with like the parking and getting in and getting out? Because I know in Kansas um, City we care about parking for everything. You know, you know we're, we're fortunate because we've never charged for parking. We offer a paid parking option for people that want a better experience closer in, mm-hmm. uh, and we've just started doing that in the last few years. Um, but... When you, when you charge for parking, you create a choke point because you've got to build somebody for parking and then get them into the facility. We haven't done that, so our parking situation is, is pretty nice, frankly. Um, our challenge is weather because we park on grass. We don't have paved lots, um, and there's a number of reasons for that, cost, env- environmental impact, other things. Um, but our parking situation is pretty good. It's probably the best in the country for NASCAR, and it's because, like Truman Sports Complex, we sit at the intersection of two interstates. Uh, for the Chiefs, I don't know. I mean, you know, when you look at, at the Truman Sports Complex, we just put, as a city, of over a billion dollars into those two facilities. And I don't know what the appetite is for taxpayers or others to continue to pay $500 million, a billion dollars to keep reinventing these facilities when, you know, the taxpayers aren't the ones making money on them. Correct. And, and so I think it's a fair question that cities need to ask. How much money should we spend on a football stadium or a baseball stadium or, or an arena? And who's making the money from that? And where does it go? And how does it work? And that being said, I'd say, you know, the difference between us and a city like Omaha or Des Moines is the Royals and the Chiefs. And I think to a lesser degree, Kansas Speedway, Sporting KC, other other things. But really, it's, it's the NFL and Major League Baseball that give us civic pride 
in a, in a big way, and it's meaningful and it matters. Mm -hmm. The question is how much does it matter when you have to start paying for it? People ask all the time, and it, it becomes the, the standard debate in July when there's nothing really going on. The Sprint Center's been a decade now, and, and I don't think we need another professional team here in Kansas City. I think Sprint Center's good without it. Do you think, from a sports business standpoint, we could support another professional team in Kansas City? It, well, it would either have to be hockey or basketball. Right. Um, I think basketball would struggle because of the success of the three college programs in the area, or if basketball was successful, it would impact those programs. Um, I think it's really hard to create an NBA experience for 40 games a year that's going to compete with the experience in Bramlage Coliseum, Allen Fieldhouse, or uh, whatever Mizzou's arena is currently called. Mm -hmm. I, I apologize that I don't know. Right. Um, but and th it's not that far of a drive to any of those places. Mizzou's a little bit further stretched, but K-State with 75 miles an hour on mm -hmm. I-70 now, you can get there pretty quick. Allen Fieldhouse is 40 minutes away for most people in Kansas City. Parking can be a different issue. Yes. But the yeah. drive itself is not that bad. And so if, if you say the parking is going to be the same at the Sprint Center or, or Allen Fieldhouse, then it's it's the commute distance. Mm -hmm. So if you're in southern Johnson County, it's a, maybe a 20-minute difference. And if that. I you mean, know? I know people that live out there in, you know, on K-10, and they're, they're right. closer to Lawrence now than they right. are downtown and so in the, the sports And then the question is, which is better? Which is a better experience? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm probably biased from my background to KU, but I, I think it would be really tough to create an NBA experience that – would compete effectively with Allen Fieldhouse. But from a business standpoint, are we fiscally able, do you think, to support another team? The, to the, to the studies say we are. Yeah. The studies say we can't afford we, – we, we don't have the, the business community to support another, um, another professional sports entity in the city. And so, you know, it's not – part of the problem is that some of the businesses we have um, don't entertain at sporting events the way other businesses do. So if you look at a place like Chicago, um, they've got a lot of businesses, crap, uh, Beam Suntory, others that do at venue entertainment. They do it in our market, um, but they do more when they're in Chicago because it's their hometown. We don't have these big B2C companies that are doing stuff here. Sprint was the biggest, and you know they pulled back quite a ways. Cerner doesn't do much at all because it's not their business model. It doesn't, doesn't work for them. I'm not being critical. It's just the truth. Garmin doesn't do it because it doesn't work for them. And so H&R Block, you know, doesn't do a whole lot because their business model is different. And so I think it would be a challenge to find that right mix. And, you know, I, I think the Sprint Center is still doing pretty well in suite sales. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the reasons they do well is they have such a diversity of activity in there. And AEG has done a great job in programming it. You drop 40 basketball games in there, or I don't know how many hockey games, and that stuff goes away. You can't do seven Garth Brooks concerts or whatever else you sure. may do. And um, right now, I would argue that classic rock and sort of the more established country and some of those things may be a better draw than an in-home NBA or NHL team because people want to go see the Eagles uh, because they're not going to be around much longer and the NBA is going to be around. All right, so that that all being said, and, and I, I find it very interesting because I'm with you. I, I just don't think from a sports landscape we can support it, another team. It from would business cannibalize. Yeah, right, it, it would. would. have to cannibalize. Somebody would be affected by right. that. I don't want to affect anybody that's currently in business right. here, right? But And I hate, I hate to go down this road, but I think I have to go down this road. These new tax codes that are now in place that are no longer allowing people to write off sporting events as business expenses mm -hmm. anymore – I know from, from talking to, to a guy like Marlon's man who's invested a lot of money in sport and tickets and what, and he goes, I think I may have to cut back now because I'm not allowed to write that off anymore as a business expense. Right. Do you see that playing a role in the way that companies do business from an entertainment standpoint and an investment standpoint in sports? It, it, yeah, depending on how the IRS ultimately comes down on it, it will. Um, 
And, and I think it's a fair, I'd call it a public policy question of, you know, if Marlins man as an example is going himself to a game and spending whatever he spends on tickets, is he building his business through that? And is that an expense that you and I and others should subsidize through our tax dollars when we're not spending our money to go do that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a fair question to ask. Does it impact the business? Does it impact the Royals or us if he was a, a racing fan? Absolutely. Um, but we're facing serious economic and you know financial problems as a country that at some point we've got to be willing to look at because it's 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 going to crush our children and our grandchildren if we don't and while i love sports obviously it's the business that i'm in uh we can't have everything all the time uh just society and the world doesn't allow that and so we've got to make difficult choices and difficult decisions i don't know i don't know where that's going to play out i think the other interesting thing in the recent tax code changes is going to be the deductibility of college contributions and the, the safe harbor that used to exist right. that no longer does, I think that has a the potential to have a greater impact on college athletics than the business exemption does for professional sports. I could be wrong about the, the relative impact, but both, both could have a huge impact. All right, I'll leave you with this. In a decade, what's the landscape of professional and, and high-level collegiate sports going to look like to you? And what's the landscape going to look like at Kansas Speedway in 10 years? Well, I... I couldn't have told you that, that collegiate sports would look the way it does now if you'd asked me that question in 2008, and so I'm almost hesitant to guess. Um, it seemed, there seems to be a lot of momentum around paying players. I don't think long-term that's a sustainable model because you run into Title IX issues. Do you pay a men's player what you pay a women's player? Football, rowing, you know, those. it very quickly becomes an unsustainable financial model, which probably would mean if you went that route, let's say the NCAA said, okay, you can pay players and a market rate or whatever it was, and then Title IX came in and you had to play men and women the same, sort of regardless of the economic benefit to the institution, mm -hmm. I think you'd see a, a more streamlined pipeline to professional sports, which will hurt college sports, ultimately. Um, how that plays out, I, I don't know, but that's just sort of, as I see things that are happening now, that seems to me to be a, a possible outcome. Mm -hmm. um, for us, I would say that I think you're going to, and I think you're seeing this across the country in racing. You're seeing it in football. You're seeing it in basketball. You're going to see smaller, more intimate venues that create a better fan experience um, because as we're competing with that, you know, sit at home, drink my own beer, whatever it may be, we've got to come as close to that as we can. And it's not going to be about selling 200,000 tickets to a race. It's going to be about selling 50,000 tickets to a race and making sure 49,000 of those people have a phenomenal time. Um, because if you sell 200,000 and 49,000 have a, a great time, which is sort of what we did in the past, you got to resell 150,000 tickets. If you sell 50,000 and 49,000 have a great time, you only got to go out and find 1,000 new customers, and that's a much, much more sustainable business model. Yeah, I think the, these NFL venues are just too large now, man. You're seeing 76,000 fans at a game in Kansas City. I think, I think smaller is better, and I think you give them a more intimate experience. I think people would like that. I, I think you're right, and I, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge, and a lot of it has to do with the revenue distribution models for the leagues. In our case, we don't have any revenue distribution as it relates to uh, gate receipts or suite revenue. The NFL has a different model, and, and it's done very well for the NFL. Um, but I think the league is going to have to start looking at those things because if you're a team and you're in a market and you say, well, why would I want 80,000 seats instead of 40,000 seats? What's the impact to me? Um, 
and you know that that's a question they'll have to answer for themselves. But I, I think you're going to see it coming up. It's a great, great business to be in, but man, it's changing so much. Like yeah. it really has in, in so many different aspects, from TV to stadium to players to fan. I mean, like sports has changed more in the last yeah ten years than I think anybody ever expected. I, I would agree, and, and again, I think a lot of it goes back to broadcast. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I would say, if if you were going to ask me what the biggest change is likely to be globally in sports it's going to be what happens in the next round of television contracts because um, with ratings dropping our networks ESPN Fox NBC CBS to a lesser degree willing to continue paying increasing rights fees for a smaller audience and the value that sports brings is it's the last thing in TV that people watch live it's the last thing people listen to live right yep, that's sure. why that's why you guys care about it right but um, if, if the audience keeps shrinking and people are using other devices, whether it's a tablet, a computer, a phone, whatever, um, how do those dollars shift and where do the dollars go? And I, I think that's going to be the really interesting question that probably impacts us as an industry more than anything else over the next 10 years. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Kansas Speedway President Pat Warren and learned exactly how important Kansas Speedway truly is to the landscape of sports, not only in Kansas City, but to the region as a whole. Spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.